Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to another at-home edition of our Banner Lecture Series. I'm Adam Scher, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions. Always glad to have you with us. As always, a big thank you to our members who make these programs possible. Your support is greatly appreciated. On March 18th at noon, uh, historian Jeffrey Kurt Ritchie will be talking about his book, Rebellious Passage, The Creole Revolt and America's Coastal Slave Trade. Today's lecture uh, takes place about 200 years prior to that event of Creole. In 1619, a group of 32 African men, women, and children arrived on the shores of Virginia. They had been kidnapped in the city of Cabasa in Angola and forced aboard the Spanish slave ship San Juan Bautista. The ship, the ship was attacked by privateers and the captives were taken by the English to their, to their new world colony. But this group has been shrouded in controversy ever since. Today, our speaker is Rick Murphy, who is an acclaimed historian and award-winning author who explores the rich contributions made by African-Americans in United States history. Rick has a bachelor's degree from the University of Massachusetts and a master's degree from Boston University. He's the author of several books, including the subject of today's lecture, Arrival of the First Africans in Virginia, which explores this fascinating story of colonialism, treason, piracy, kidnapping, enslavement, and British law. Please welcome Rick Murphy. Adam, thank you very much for that kind introduction and VMHC, thank you for your warm uh, reception today. Um, I'm gonna take you through the writing of the book, The Arrival of the First Africans in Virginia. I'm gonna tell you some behind the scenes stories. I'm gonna tell you how I got involved in this. Um, and more important, I'm gonna hopefully explain who the first uh, Africans were who arrived in Virginia and subsequently English America. <clears throat> when I first took pen to paper, there were some things I wanted to do, and you have to excuse me, for some reason my throat all of a sudden got dry, so if you keep seeing me drinking water, <clears throat> I don't want to have to keep interrupting myself. When I took pen to paper, um, I found it very interesting who these men, women, and children were, and, and my interest in the story, I hope to be the same interest that all of you would have. So when I took pen to paper, I wanted to talk about the historical significance of who these original Angolans were, where did they come from, the importance in African society that they had, the circumstance of their departure from their homeland, the circumstances in which they lived when they came here, and equally important, the conditions in which they lived once they were here. Now, when it comes to history, when it comes to our knowledge of history, and particularly for authors, we tend to write what we know. And we only know what we're taught in school. And I have to admit, I knew nothing of Virginia's history. I never learned about the founding of Jamestown. I never learned about Yardley's representative government. I never learned about the arrival of the 20 and odd. I knew a little bit about Bacon's Rebellion, had no context for the 1705 slave codes, and I really didn't understand how the resolves helped the Southern colonies get into the Revolutionary War. Now, since all of you are Virginians, you're going to ask yourself, how is it that he didn't know that? It's because, and if you can't tell from my accent, I'm from Massachusetts, and we had our own very distinct history. So I learned about the arrival of the Mayflower, the founding of Plymouth Rock. I learned about the Mayflower Compact, the arrival of the 120 pilgrims. I learned about America's first Thanksgiving and the Boston Tea Party. And of course, the shot heard around the world at Lexington and Concord. So that was the basis of, of my learning in school and the basis of my historical knowledge of colonial America. Now, when I first got into this, I didn't do it as a historian. Quite frankly, I fell into this strictly by accident. 
And what I wanna do is to explain to you how I, as a historian and genealogist, came to learn about the 20 and odd as referred to by John Rolfe. But my story starts in the early 1980s relative to a land dispute on Martha's Vineyard. The family owned a substantial tract of land on Martha's Vineyard, goes back to the 1700s. And in this land dispute, we were told that we would have to create a family pedigree. Now, that dumbfounded us, particularly myself and siblings and cousins, because in my family, we raised German shepherds. And when you think of a family pedigree, I only knew, we only knew of the American Kennel Association, AKA, and that was the raising of purebred puppies. And we certainly didn't see ourselves as purebreds nor as puppies, but we soon learned that the discussion was one of creating a family pedigree. So what we had to do was we had to construct our family lineage going back to the 1700s to clearly document that our family owned the land. Now, this dispute was with a very famous person who had a lot of money, in fact, even hired an attorney on our behalf because they didn't want any kind of problems in the press. To truncate the story is we entered into a settlement. And this is the land, what a beautiful tract of land. You'll see the bay on the, on the left and you'll see the Atlantic Ocean on the right. And those of you who are familiar with the Quinner or Gayhead, you'll know that that's one of the most expensive tracts of land that could be. And this tract of land, once the settlement came about, this was on my maternal grandfather's side of the family, my maternal grandmother wanted us to do an investigation on land that her family owned. Now, before I get into that, that track of land was the land that later became Redgate Farm in Aquinnah, which was the property owned by Jackie Kennedy Onassis. And if you look at the right arrow, you can see the farm in the background. And where we're st I'm standing to take the picture is the land that we own. And she had acquired her property in the late 70s, but because of all the gawkers, as myself, um, on this particular day here, she wanted to take as much land as she could for her own privacy. Now, I mentioned how my grandmother wanted us to do an investigation on her family in terms of all the land that the family owned. My grandmother, born in Massachusetts, her parents came from a county called Granville County, North Carolina. She often talked about how the family owned thousands and thousands of acres of land. Now, as young people, um, it had no real meaning to us, but she insisted that I begin to do a similar type of research and in that research, find out about the land documents. The, my mother in 1983, as part of the settlement where we had to establish our family pedigree, joined the DAR. So I would come down to DAR Daughters of the American Revolution, I would go to their library and I began to research the documents on Granville, North Carolina. Now, my grandmother, as I know her maiden name, she knew her grandmother's maiden name. And I was able to find my great, my first great grandparents' marriage certificate at the DAR. I was able to find both of their parents' marriage certificate in the DAR. And that took me very much to the early 1980s. But then, unlike Massachusetts that had every birth, death, and marriage certificate going back to the 1600s, I had to start looking at the land patents. Now, what's very interesting, what I'm about to do and about to share with you, had I done it through a genealogical perspective, I would have never found the people I'm going to share this story with you. But because I did it in an unusual way, through the land records, which is what my grandmother had requested, we were able to find an awful lot of information. So I, I drove down to the Granville County Courthouse and lo and behold, not only did I find land patents, 
I found the original Gowen family land deed actually signed by Lord Granville himself. Lord Granville, the county named after him. Then from that, I was able to find other abstracts going back. And what it actually enabled me to do was to track the family land. And in tracking the family land, it took me all the way back to Virginia. Now, these land records were very interesting because when someone dies with land, they leave the name of their family. So they almost provided a genealogy within the land records and within the wills. And what that enabled me to do, as you can see here, if you look at the bottom, Harriet Gowen, which was my grandmother's maiden name, I found her father, who was Henry, his father, who was Edward, 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 to William, to Michal, and to John. Now, again, I knew nothing about Virginia's history. I wasn't looking for these individuals from a historical perspective. I was only looking at them, looking for them in a genealogical perspective. And quite frankly, I wasn't even looking for that. I was looking for land records. Now, as you can see, the land records took me in a direct line from North Carolina to the James River. Flipping that technically meant that the family started on the James River and ended in North Carolina and Granville County. <clears throat> now, someone might want to say, how were you able to trace back that far? Well, these are just some of the books that I used at the DAR library, tracing land patents. Again, nothing mysterious about it, was not trying to do anything fancy, but these were the books that I found that had some very interesting records in them. And what I was able to do was to absolutely connect a family genealogy from my first, my second great grandmother, all the way through to my 11th great grandfather. <clears throat> And fortunate for me, <clears throat> the family only dotted out at my grandmother's grandmother, and because she knew her, I was able to follow all of the men in a direct line from land patent to land patent. They even showed how they sold land in one location to purchase the land in another location. That became quite invaluable to me. But in doing this research, all of a sudden, uh, the clear blue sky, I made a remarkable discovery. The discovery of 1619. <clears throat> and I'll explain a little bit about 1619, how I made this discovery. But those of you who are Virginians who know Virginia history, you knew that 1619 was the year of the first representative government in July of 1619. And a month later in August 1619 was the arrival of what was known by John Rolfe as the 20 and odd. And you can see his document here <clears throat> where he referred to them as 20 and odd. But what's interesting, that's really not the total number who came here. Now, the White Lion was the first ship to arrive. It arrived on August 25th, 1619, and three or four days later arrived the treasurer as documented in the colonial records. <clears throat> now, in my research, in 1984, 85, I believe, I may have the dates off, two publications came out in the William & Mary Quarterly, and the name Gowen flagged up. And in those two documents, Ungel Sluter, who was a Danish researcher, explained the story about a ship called the San Juan Bautista and how that ship was pirated by two English ships. And for a whole year, I tried to piece together the story that Ingle Sluter had in the William & Mary Quarterly. And then the next year, what happened is John Thornton came up with a book. Let me show this one a little bit longer. So those of you who may want to, it's William & Mary, volume 54, uh, April 1997, got my dates wrong. 
And then the following year, John Thornton came up with a book. And what that did is John Thornton explained where they came from and the historical significance of the city where they came from, which I'll get into momentarily. So again, I now have a wealth of material that allowed me to understand the arrival of the first Africans in Virginia. And again, this wasn't anything that I was planning because had I been looking for this, I would have never found it, but I found it purely by accident. Or those of you who are genealogists, you know that we all have a secret. And the secret is our ancestors speak to us. And quite frankly, my ancestors spoke to me because they told me where to look for them. Most unusual. So when I wrote the book, again, I wanted to talk about the historical significance of who they were, where they came from, their importance in African society, how they happened to depart their homeland, the circumstances in which they lived here, and their legal status. And that brought me to four conclusions, globalization, colonization, integration, and propagation. And I'll talk about each of those as it pertains to these. Let's first talk about globalization. Now, did you know why European nations felt that they had ownership over Africa and South America and other parts of the world? The Pope told them that in the Treaty of Societies. Now, Spain and Portugal um, were on the same Iberian Peninsula, and like family, they didn't get along, and they were exploring around the world, and they kept bumping into each other. They were going to go to war, and the Pope knew that that would be a disaster. So he divided the world in half, and he said to Spain, you have West Portugal, you have East. And many people would say, well, how is that possible? Because Brazil is in the West. And the reality is it depends on how the Pope divided the world up. And this is an example how the Pope divided the world. And that's why Portugal, during the early period of the colonial era, believed that it owned Africa and everything there, including the people. And it began to colonize, which brings us now to colonization. And colonization is when you establish control over indigenous people. And in 1493, a year after Columbus in 1492, the sailed the ocean blue, Diago Cao found the kingdom of Congo in Angola. And we know so much from his writings. Now, very different than what we learn in our history books but he said it was such an advanced civilization. He said they lived in cities, much like the cities that, that were existing in Portugal at the time. They had a form of government. They were very sophisticated. They had very sophisticated languages, which I happen to find very interesting because my first experience with, the, with Africans, I'm sure many of you are the same, was Tarzan, where the only language they had was four syllables, uh, 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 uh. but to learn that they had a very developed language. Not only that, did they have a developed language and religion, the Portuguese and the Angolans in particular had such a strong trading and international relationship that many of the royal subjects' sons were educated in Spain, Portugal, and in Rome. And how do we know that? It's in the colonial records. But something happened, and obviously I'm really truncating this because you're going to buy the book, but something happened. And despite that good, long, strong relationship that Portugal had with Angola, when they found silver underneath the royal city, yep, you named it, they were determined to take control of the city. And in the fall of 1618, they sent 36 ships loaded with sailors and armament to take control of the city. And in January and February of 1619, the Royal Africans were beaten. Now, approximately 4,000 were captured. Now, whenever you try to take over a government, you obviously take the most educated, the landowners, um, um, those of prestige, those were the ones that were captured. Now, the last ship to arrive 
was the first ship to leave, and that was the San Juan Bautista. And because it was the first ship to leave, it had the most royal of the royals on it. Now, while they were placed on 36 slave ships, it's really important to understand that 350 left on the San Juan Bautista. But that ship was pirated by two English ships, illegally pirated, pirated by two English ships that almost led England and Spain back into a costly war that no one wanted. Now, this is what the San Juan Bautista looks like. This is a replica. Look at how small the ship is. And originally 350 captured Angolans were on this ship headed to New Spain, Veracruz, New Spain, present day Mexico. This ship was actually built in Japan, but that's another story you'll find in the book. Now, where did the Angolans come from? They came from the capital city of Cabasa. They had the characteristics of the Bantu people that we know of today. They were royal subjects and came from the upper ranks. And they were Catholics because within that 200 period that they had the relationship with Portugal, they converted the entire population to Catholicism. And as a result of that, they had names of patriot saints, Catholic patriot saints. saints. Now, when the Angolans were taken from the royal city, they were enslaved. When they were placed on the San Juan Bautista, they were slaves. And they were destined to be slaves when they reached New Spain. But those that came to the colony of Virginia, that would not be their destiny. And I'll share with you how we know that. Now, when the white lion and the treasurer attacked the San Juan Bautista, they thought there was gold and silver on it. They certainly were not going to release at that point in time in 1619, attack a, a ship for enslaved Africans and run the risk of treason and being hung by the King of England, they were looking for gold and silver. Two hours they battled. And in that two hour battle, they boarded the San Juan Bautista and realized that there was nothing more than enslaved men, women, and children on it. They searched the entire ship. They ripped it apart board by board because they just knew that there was gold on that ship and that would not be the case. Now, one of the reasons they thought gold was on the ship because it was a very elaborate looking ship because the ship belonged to the emperor of Japan who sailed around the world debating whether he wanted his country to become a Christian company, country decided not and then sold the ship to Spain. So it wasn't just an old barge, it was a very elaborate looking ship as you saw in the picture. Now, the English pirates, when they attacked the San Juan Bautista, they created such an international crisis that it created specific problems for the two captains because King James conducted a Privy Council inquiry. Now, when the Angolans came to Virginia on August 25th, 1619, Virginia is not what we think of it today when they arrived at Point Comfort. And when they arrived at Point Comfort, the first ship, the White Lion, they knew those two, the captains, that they now were in trouble. And when the White Lion arrived, he was told that there was a warrant over the arrest for Captain Elrith, who was the second captain to arrive four days later on board the treasurer and that the ship was to be seized. That's how serious an inquiry that they had. Now the White Lion, they sold the 29 Angolans that were on board. Once they arrived, they became just like the poor English indentured servants. 
and they had no contracts. Now you're going to ask, how do we know? I will get into that momentarily. Now the settlement of Jamestown, it was founded in 1607. It was on a peninsula. The colony was actually owned by the Virginia Company of London. The employees, the, the inhabitants were the employees of Virginia Company. And the first 20 years was an absolute failure. Now with that, it was high attrition, atrocities by local tribesmen, famine, disease, and poor management. They could not recruit or build the colony. Most came from the peasant class of England. They were poor, uneducated, many were orphaned or homeless, and many had commuted prison sentences. But again, they worked for the Virginia Company as indentured servants. Now, their survival here in Virginia was very much like the TV show we see today, Survivor, and Survival of the Fittest. But no matter how hard they worked, they didn't have the skills necessary for survival because they didn't have the basic skills of agriculture, farming, or animal husbandry. Particularly as we look at um, undeveloped countries today, particularly those in a semi-tropical climate, that's what they came to when they came here. Now you're gonna ask, how do we know this? Well, there was one book in particular, the original list of persons of quality. Now this is, book is very interesting. I like the title of this book, Original List of Persons of Quality, because it leads one to believe that everyone who came here and most Virginians who have ancestors that came from that time period believe they came uh, came here because they were people of quality. But if you look at the second heading of that book, they were immigrants, religious exiles, political rebels, men who were serving a period of time, children who were stolen, maidens pressed, we know what that means, and others who went from Great Britain to the American plantations. That's who was here. And another book by Peter Wilson Coleman, it's a social history of forced immigration to the Americans of felons and destitute children, political and religious nonconformants, vagabonds, beggars, and other undesirables. Every man, woman, and child who came here from England was put on a ship's registrar manifest, and that's how we know who these folks are, who they were in their stations in life. Now, when it comes to the Angolans, some historians profess that they weren't Christian, we don't know their names, that they were slaves, and that they arrived with no skills. And we, we have that belief because there's an actual document that somewhat kind of conforms to that. And that document came out of the Ferrara Papers. And in this paper is the Virginia census of 1620, which would have been just a couple of months, March of 1620, when the first Angolans came here. And when you'll notice on this here, you see where it says non-Christians in the service of the English. Now, those of you who, who understand religion, they came from a Catholic environment and the English colony was a Protestant colony of protesters and the Pope had a number of, of comments with respect to the religion of England and those in Africa because he in fact made the, the leading Angolan Catholic in their country, an actual archbishop before there was one even in some of the Protestant countries. Now, if you'll notice here, the numbers, and the number was 32. So even though John Rolfe wrote in his notes, 20 and odd, that really was a cover-up for the crime that had been committed, but when the actual census was taken with 32. Now, how do we know that Rolfe is not correct and this is correct? Well, you can tell by the number of people who got off the ships through the ship's manifest. Now, some historians, as I said, we don't know their names. That's also another false narrative because in the 1623 census, as you'll see the list of the living, and this was a year after the Great Massacre, in this list here, you will see the beginning of some of the names being listed. And you'll notice many of these names have Spanish names or were recently converted from Spanish names the English sounding names. And in this we find where they lived, who the captains were on the plantations that they lived on and where they lived in the colony. And what happened is they were 
distributed throughout the colony. So they were integrated within the colony. Now, some professed that they were slaves. And, you know, someone not too long ago made the statement that the first Africans, that their skin was black and dirty and represented evil, so they had to be slaves. I want to show you that that wasn't necessarily the case because in the 1624-1625 muster, again, you've got these ship captains. Now, these captains were salty old men. They traveled all over the world. They were captains. They knew what an enslaved person was and what an enslaved person wasn't. So the head of each of these plantations or developments or settlements was headed up by a captain. And they gave the, their districts these fancy names. And you can see the names of the plantations or the areas in which these Angolans lived. But these sea captains who were worldly men, what they did in that same muster is they listed their legal status. And they didn't list them as slaves, they listed them as servants. So in 1624, 1625, we hear people say that slavery started all the way to the beginning, and that's not what the legal documents, that's not what the colonial records are showing. Now, these colonial records weren't just made up because the same records are in England and here in Virginia. Now, those of you who work in government or work in the private sector, you know what KSAs are. And for those of you who have not worked in jobs or you've heard the expression KSAs, you know that it stands for knowledge, skills, and abilities. And these Angolans brought tremendous knowledge, skills, and abilities because they were farmers, they were merchants, they were cattlemen, they raised crops, they traded crops. Now, how do we know this? Well. In the original list of persons of quality, there is just so much information in these colonial records that no one knew they were there or chose not to share it. And again, we have with their immigrants and religious exiles and so forth and so on. But also in this document, it also shows the ships that these people came on. So now I'm going to show you, this is the cover. And to the right is a page. And I'm going to just take one page out of this. And in this one page, you will see the servants that are listed at the muster of Captain William Pierce, who was one of the most wealthy men on the colony. And you'll notice Thomas Smith, who is Englishman. He's a servant, came on the Abigail. Henry Bradford is an Englishman. He's a servant, came on the Abigail. Esther Alfred a maid servant came on the Jonathan. And lo and behold, Angelo, whose name is Angela, it was converted to Angela, a Negro woman on the treasurer. And this was written in 1623. Who knew? Now, the Angolans who came here, the San Juan Bautista, their legal status, we find throughout those early colonial records. And we do not find them as enslaved. Indentured servants, no different than the English, we find. But as they come out of their indenture, what's even more interesting, we find where they have the ability to own their own animals. An enslaved person cannot do that. They were able to indenture their own children for protection. An enslaved person could not do that. They entered into contracts. They bought land and leased land, and a slave person could not do that. Now, I'm going to share with you some of these Angolans, and I'm going to start to talk a little bit fast because my time is running out. But there were two in particular, Anthony Mary Johnson. They're on that 1624-1625 census. You'll see it listed there. And Anthony and his wife became a headwright, and you know what a headwright is. For every head you bring over, you're entitled to 50 acres of land. And listed here in Cavaliers and Pioneers. So Anthony and his wife were listed as headwrights. But lo and behold, they came on the treasurer. 
The treasure was not allowed to land. They went to Bermuda because of the Privy Council investigation. They were hit in England and they were brought back on different ships. Anthony came back on the James and Margaret came, uh, Mary came back on the Margaret and John in 1622 in time for the census. But lo and behold, this man who in his lifetime was captured as an enslaved and was destined to be enslaved for the rest of his life, he bought 250 acres of land in Northampton County in 1651 on page 36. And he transported four Englishmen and his son Richard from another county, and that enabled him five people in total, times 50, 250 acres of land. It was a Catholic martyr. Y'all are probably pretty familiar with the Severn Battle. And this Catholic martyr, his name was Juan Pedro. They believed he was an actual Catholic priest over in Angola because he was one of the highest ranking Catholics in the colony of Maryland. And when they had the great battle, he was the second person to be killed. And where do we find him? Right there on that 1624, 1625 muster. John Gowen, my 11th great-grandfather. And this is how I happened to stumble upon the story of 1619. As I'm falling upon the information on John Gowen, came on the treasurer. His name is spelled different. And the next document, you'll find that he's actually on the patent of Captain William Ewens. His name is spelled here differently, but it's confirmed by many other documents Margaret Cornish, his wife, is right there on the 1623 census. And there's her name right there, my 11th great grandmother. Now we know the names of these Angolans. So again, they said we didn't know their names. And now through research, I and others have now been able to document the names of the original Angolans. And we know who they are from the original colonial records. And there were so few Africans in the colonies up until the 1640s, 1650s, when the names surfaced based on the relationships with the plantations that they came from and, the, and their the captains were able to determine who they were. Oh, I just did something wrong here. Apologize for that. Now, when I did my research, I went through court transcripts judicial rulings, personal statements, wills, deeds, and orders, and estate papers. And again, all in these documents right here. But you know, those original Angolans, because they were smart people who could read and write and understood the tenets of religion, were so sophisticated that the next generation, they began to strip away the rights. And one of the things that they did is you know, many people would say, why is it in the black community it is such a matriarchal society? Because in 1662, the laws were changed that the child took the status of the mother. And then after Bacon's rebellion, there was a legacy that was left behind. And that legacy was integration. And those of you who are scholars of Bacon's rebellion know it was a multiracial rebellion. And it was multiracial because the Africans and the Native Americans and the English were all intermarrying with each other. And when you go back to those original eight colonies or counties uh, within Virginia, a gentleman wrote a book about white slaves. And I think the title is a little too narrow, but what he did was he was able to find between 1660 and 1720, more than 5,000 white children were kidnapped and taken to Maryland and Virginia. And those same individuals were the ones that intermarried with those Angolans. And from Bacon's Rebellion, we got the 1705 slave codes. And from those slave codes, they were the foundation of antebellum slavery and Jim Crow laws. And those slave codes, if you were to look at them, those slave codes, they actually mirror the accomplishments of the first Angolans who came here. So you can look at Anthony Johnson and every accomplishment that he made, it was flipped into an actual code. So no other African could benefit the way that Anthony did. John Gowen, my ancestor, and his wife, Margaret Cornish, separated. And 
based on my research, he became the first man in the Virginia colony to sue for custody of his son, as found in the English records. Margaret, years later, appears to be the first woman ever to purchase her own land. Now, women got their land from the deaths of their husbands, they inherited it, or they got it from their sons, but Margaret appears, based on the records, to be the first who actually purchased her own land. And with those successes, they turned them around to make sure that no other African would be able to do that. So propagation came as a result of the English and the Angolans intermarrying one another. And those 20 and odd Africans and other colonial Africans actually became 900 separate individual free African-American families to the early 1700s. And if you look at this list here, I mean, you'll begin to see all of the uh, original names that came out of those first documented Angolans in 1619. These are their descendant names. And again, most of, the, most of this is through interracial relationships. Now, somebody will know, somebody will ask usually all the time, well, your paperwork says this, but how do we know this is true? Well, when I did all of my research in the early 80s through the early 90s, that was before the internet. That was before all of this new technology. And I had been asked by several of my publishers, you should take a DNA test because we need to make sure that your DNA follows your narrative. And lo and behold, my DNA, I have Bantu DNA. And not only do I have Bantu DNA, my DNA goes to the specific area of Kabasa, Angola, where Margaret Cornish and John Gowen came from. So my DNA takes me directly to John Gowen and Margaret Cornish whether you look at the Centimorgans or whatever you look at, it's been analyzed and overanalyzed, goes right back to the paper trail as everyone thought that it would. And what's more important, the legacy that these Angolans left behind, I don't know if you know that there are 44 million Americans of African descent in the United States today. 70% of us are related to one another. And not only 70% of us related to one another, we're beginning to find out that 20 to, 20 to 40 million Americans of European descent also have African DNA, which makes sense because, again, because of integration of repopulating. So with that, I think my time came right to the, the moment. So in writing the book, The First Africans to Arrive in, in Virginia, I wanted to make sure that I talked about the historical significance on who they were, where did they come from, the importance in African society in terms of being royals and in their, their KSAs, their knowledge, skills, and abilities, the circumstances in which they left, and they left for no other reason that the Portuguese found silver under their land. So when you hear people say 1619, is a fake made up story. It was Africans selling other Africans. That was not the case. And the legal status, their legal status, once they came here. I wanna thank you all for the kind invitation and I hope we have a lot of good questions. If you wanna find out more, um, you can go to my website at rickmurphy.com. I'm on Facebook, I'm on YouTube, on, I'm on Twitter, although I have uh, not done any tweeting for the last three or four years. Um, so I will get back to that shortly. And with that, any questions that you have, I hope I can answer them. Thanks, Rick. Great, great program. Uh, for those of you on Facebook and YouTube, uh, please feel free to ask some questions. We've got a, got a few minutes for Rick. Um, so the one question I want to start off with is, um, 
not being a native Virginian, uh, you were objective in this uh, in this search in the, in telling this story. What was what was the biggest discovery or surprise to you as a non-Virginian about this story? As a non-Virginian, again, as I started to do the land records, um, I, I really had no idea where I was going. I literally was just going from one land patent to another one. And fortunately, they had laid out all the information. When I started to get to, so when I went to Granville County and I saw, found, I think, the 1742 original land patent right in the draw there, I was pretty impressed with that. Um, and, and I was also impressed that it had the signature of Lord, Lord Granville. <clears throat> now, I must admit, my, my family in New England, we own land going back to the 1700s as well. So I guess I wasn't blown away with that other than Lord Granville. But when I saw that he sold land in Virginia and I started to research Virginia, and then I'm getting into the mid-1600s, and all of a sudden I realize 1635, I find John Gowen with this legal dispute with his wife, Margaret Cornish. And then I find out that he's one of the original and Margaret's one of the original. I, that blew me away. That, that was something, had I been looking for, I would have never found it. Um, if someone told me about it, I wouldn't be able to make the connection. That blew me away for weeks. So someone asks, what happened to the Africans who didn't come to Virginia outside of the 32 Angolans that you spoke of? When the ship left Luna, Angola, it had 350. Within one week's time, week, week and a half, over 100 men, women, and children had died. They were not cut out for this. They were not hardened people. Captain Acuna stopped in Jamaica. He needed to get food, he needed to wash down the ship. To get the food and the medicine he needed, he left behind 24 young boys as evidence in his ship's manifest. The remainder, 147, eventually arrived in um, Veracruz, New Mexico. Acuna went bankrupt. The captain of the ship was Captain Acuna. When he went back to Spain, he talked to his cousin, his cousin was Count Sotomayor, who was also the ambassador to England. He was the ambassador to King James, and that's why King James conducted the Privy Council investigation. And that's why it became such a big deal, because Count Sotomayor was trying to recoup the funds that his cousin had gone bankrupt over. So only 147 actually arrived in Veracruz um, um, in Spain. What's interesting is some of the people today who are doing DNA are finding um, distant relatives um, in parts of Brazil um, and in Mexico and in Jamaica as well. Another uh, listener has asked, why did the first Angolans who had been the royals work with the English to get back to their home? Um, probably the same reason that the English peasants who came here couldn't work with the English to go back home. They weren't, the ships were not leaving here to go take people back. When the ships left here, they were taking barrels of tobacco, um, back to England. Some of the children who were kidnapped based on some of the colonial records, um, they kidnapped the wrong kids and their family had the funds and the resources to come and get them. Um, but the reality is um, no one went back to their, their home um, and you're only dealing with 32 um, um, Angolans and you were dealing with thousands and thousands of English peasants and they didn't get back home either. So one of the vessels that you spoke about, the treasurer was uh, apparently half owned by Samuel Argall, a former admiral and governor of Virginia, was he charged by the king for his piracy? He was a he was a partial owner. He was a, a, a minor stakeholder. The real person who owned it was Sir Robert Rich, the Earl of Warwick. Um, he was like 
uh, Aristotle Onassis, he owned a large fleet of ships. Uh, yes, he was charged. There were a number of lawsuits. Um, and the only reason he got away is because uh, Governor Yardley died, I think, in 1625. Uh, Cape Merchant Piercy died in 1626. And Count Sotomayor died in 1627. So the three major principals who were going to go after him each died in three consecutive years. And King James died in, I think, 1625 as well. I um, mean, his son Charles took over. So the principals in this investigation, um, but it was a pretty serious investigation because if you recall, Sir Walter Raleigh in 1618 was beheaded for piracy of Spanish ships. So on a, a family note, you mentioned when you were doing uh, your genealogical research that uh, one of your uh, predecessors had a, an early custody case with their son. Do you know how that turned out? Yes, he won the, he won the case. Um, and, and that's why um, I found out so much information about John Gowen was because of the custody case. Um, and um, I didn't initially know who his son and the grandson was, which would made that last connection. But I happened to come up, uh, went through one of the books and found the name Gowen, um, and that was the family name. And once I found the name Gowen, then I made the connection for the three generations to the Edward, because um, I had all of these Edwards, and they kept leaving land to my son Edward, my son Edward, my son Edward, um, and then that's how I made the connection. Because the because the grandson William left land to his son Edward, which was Edward the first. So what's what's next for you, Rick? What what projects are you working on for the future? Um, I'm actually doing the biography of John Gowen and Margaret Cornish. Um, I'm writing about another family um, group, um, um, the Claps Grandisons out of Noel, Massachusetts. They were involved in the Revolutionary War. Um, they um, had 100 acres of land. Um, and because of smallpox, the heir of the land gave the land to the town for the perpetual care of his children. Um, three girls, because he was afraid they would be sold into prostitution. Um, it's a phenomenal story because they were absolutely war heroes. Um, they were part of the Green Mountain Boys, um, Seth Warner's group. Um, they were prisoners of war um, for 18 months, and half of the um, prisoners had died, and they succeeded and got land grants. Um, so that's the book. And I'm also going to write about the legacy of the first in Golans, um, because of all of the discussions today about 16, 19, and 400 years, I think it's really important that people understand the legacy of these first Angolans and how their successes were actually turned into the slave codes, which became the antebellum slavery laws, and then hence the Jim Crow laws. So that's just four books that I have in mind right now, and, and I've got about two of them half written. Terrific. Well, Rick Murphy, thank you again so much for a fascinating presentation. Uh, folks, remember you can, uh, purchase signed copies of Rick's book uh, from our museum shop uh, by going to www.shopvirginiahistory.org. Uh, so please do that and be sure to join us uh, next month uh, for Jeffrey Kerr Ritchie for his uh, lecture on the, the Creole revolt. Uh, so in the meantime, take care, please be safe, and we'll see you next month. Thank you.